Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you to turn to really a, a classic passage, one that probably in a, in a Reformed church, a Reformed Baptist church, you're, it's almost probably as though your pages just sort of turn there on their own, to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And we're going to have a topical message this afternoon uh, on uh, what is sometimes called the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. And so uh, this passage is one that speaks, has spoken so powerfully over the years to so many about what grace is, what is the grace of God in Christ. And so let me invite you as uh, you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. Again, I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, wherein the Apostle Paul writes, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word. And let me invite you once again to join with me in prayer. Gracious God, we do commend unto thee this time of our listening to thy word and thinking about the great doctrines of salvation and grace. And so give us illumination and give us steadfastness uh, to be able to, to listen with profit today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this afternoon, I want us to revisit a topic that is really a touchstone of what we would call Reformed theology. It's really biblical theology. And that is something we sometimes refer to as the five points of Calvinism. And part of the reason I uh, was uh, interested in repeating this, this is kind of message that we, we actually periodically, every couple years, will revisit in this church and uh, we had our monthly youth meeting last month, and I was asking the kids, tell me what TULIP is, and they got through it, but we sort of stumbled a little bit, and I thought, well, it might be worthwhile to, to come back and revisit this again. Maybe it's been a while since we've, uh, we've covered this topic. Again, we want to look at what is or what are the five points of Calvinism. First of all, let's talk about the term Calvinism. Calvinism refers to teaching associated with a man named John Calvin. John Calvin was a Protestant reformer, lived at that great time of revival. We've been talking about it recently on Wednesday nights in our church history a study on uh, the, the, the Protestant Reformation, as Sinclair Ferguson called it, the greatest revival since Pentecost in Acts 2, when there was a rediscovery of the gospel, where the gospel had been, had been lost uh, had been become clouded, and there was a time of light and a vibrancy, a return to the scriptures. And Calvin became a leader uh, in Geneva, in Switzerland, and he lived from 1509 to 1564. And he was perhaps best known as a great commentator on the scriptures. He was a great interpreter of the scriptures. And he was especially known for his teaching and his emphasis on the sovereignty of God and salvation. That God 
is the one who gets the glory for saving sinners. And sometimes this emphasis is described as monergism. Mono means one, that salvation is the work of God alone, as opposed to synergism, uh, a synergistic view of salvation. Now, when we say that we would uphold Calvinism or the five points of Calvinism, we're not suggesting that we agree with John Calvin about everything. John Calvin uh, was a man and he didn't understand all things perfectly. Like we would, for example, as Reformed Baptists, completely disagree with him on the teaching of baptism because we believe the Bible teaches credo baptism, believer's baptism, and not infant baptism. But we would just say we, we would agree with him where he, we think he agrees rightly with Scripture. And we would agree with him in, uh, in this case with respect to his doctrine of salvation. And the, the, the key term that's used by the theologians here is soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. In Greek, the word soter means savior. Soterion means salvation. And soteriology means the doctrine of salvation. Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian Baptist pastor, said Calvinism is only a nickname for the gospel. And so the five points of Calvinism are really an attempt to understand the gospel. They're also sometimes called the doctrines of grace, and those terms are used interchangeably, the five points of Calvinism and the doctrines of grace. They are five biblical and logically related sub-doctrines of the larger doctrine of how God has been pleased to save fallen and sinful men. And the emphasis is on grace. We read about it there in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Grace means the unmerited gift of salvation that comes through Christ. Uh, we love grace. Uh, many people have as one of their favorite songs, Amazing Grace. We name our churches Grace. Uh, how many churches have you run across that are called Grace Baptist Church or even Grace Reformed Baptist Church? Uh, we name Christian schools and Christian co-ops after this word grace. And some have even named their daughters Grace. Uh, but the question is, do we comprehend just how radical the biblical teaching of grace is. If you search through the writings of John Calvin, you will uh, find that there's no place in his writings in his great institutes of the Christian religion or his commentaries or his sermons. You won't find the phrase, the five points of Calvinism. You won't find an exposition explicitly of those things, although I think the teaching of each one of the points is there. And... Um, we get the, this idea of these five points, however, historically from a, an apologetic response that was given by men who followed after Calvin to a teaching that was known as Arminianism. It's not Armenianism, that's people from Armenia, but Arminianism. And Ar Arminianism refers to the teachings of a Dutch uh, theologian who was named Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius 
denied the uh, sovereignty of God in salvation. He was an advocate for synergism, not monergism. And his followers in the year 1610 uh, put forward a document that was called the Arminian Remonstrance, where they laid out what could be called the five points of Arminianism. We've got the five points of Calvinism. But originally, it, it was the five points of Arminianism. And here were the five points of Arminianism. The order is a little different than, than the five points of Calvinism initially. The first, they argued, for conditional election. God chooses men conditioned on their response to him first. Secondly, they believed in unlimited or universal atonement. That God's death on the cross wasn't for anyone in particular. And so they, they would call this universal atonement. And in later generations, many of the Arminians who held to this eventually went to the ultimate, uh, I think, outworking of universal atonement. And that is to believe in universalism. To believe everyone is saved regardless of how they respond to Christ. They also uh, advocated... That sinfulness, the sinfulness of man, was able to be overcome. That the sinfulness of man could be overcome. That sinful men could choose God. They also held to resistible grace. That God's grace extended them could be resisted, could be refused. And they believed in what we could call the precariousness of the saints, that you could lose your salvation. You could be saved and you could lose your salvation. And so there were uh, many uh, godly men who were alarmed by the rise of this teaching. And so they called for a great conference that was held. Again, this remonstrance was in 1610. And they had a great conference that was held in the Netherlands, in a place called Dort. And it met uh, over the course of part of two years, 1618 to 1619. A great international conference. Godly men from all over Europe came. And uh, they called this the Synod of Dort. And they drew up some articles, the Confession of Faith. They're still used in many churches to this day, Reformed churches. And they articulated responses to each one of the five points of Arminianism. In later Reformed apologetics, the order uh, of the five points of Arminianism and their responses to them were slightly shuffled about. And at some point, no one knows exactly when or who did it, but in the English-speaking world, they came up with the acronym TULIP to articulate the Reformed biblical responses to the five points of Arminianism. And tulip seems fitting because Holland, of course, is known for tulips. And so it seems like a fitting image. And so they provided this way to make it easier to remember the Reformed responses to the five points of Arminianism. And so the, the acronym tulip is this, T... They said the Bible teaches not that men can overcome their sin, 
But the Bible teaches total depravity. That's the T. Secondly, they said the Bible teaches the unconditional election of God. God doesn't choose based on the actions of men. He's a, he unconditionally elects those who will be saved. L, they said, the Bible teaches limited atonement. We'll unpack what that means in a moment. Not universal atonement, but limited atonement. I, they said, the Bible teaches irresistible grace. And P, they taught, the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. Those who are genuinely converted will not lose their salvation, but God will keep them in the faith. So that's TULIP. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And so let's briefly look at each one of these five doctrines, and I'm going to cite a couple of scriptures for each one to show. And I've got to warn you, um, I'm going to say a lot about total depravity. Okay, I'm going to say a lot about that up front and much less probably about the other points because it is such an important point. It's really the gateway to understanding the Bible's teaching on the necessity of grace. So let's start with total depravity. The first point might also be called radical depravity or pervasive depravity. And this is a teaching about the condition of man in sin. Our state, we would say, according to the Bible, is total or radical depravity. I was listening this past week to a podcast about uh, the ministry of George Whitfield, and they said George Whitfield, when he was preaching in England and he came over and was preaching in Georgia and up and down this, uh, the eastern seaboard, he had a sermon that he preached uh, that uh, was had had three R's, and it started with you're you're ruined, you're restored, and you're regenerated. But the first point was you're ruined, you're ruined, and that's total depravity. The prophet Jeremiah described the human condition in Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Apostle Paul said of himself, an apostle, in Romans seven eighteen, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. The Apostle Paul then went on to, to teach what we could call the universality of sin. As he said in Romans three twenty three, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Some know that from the Romans Road plan of salvation. Often that's a place to start with someone who's unregenerate. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then Paul also taught the wages or the consequences of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul taught that because of sin we are spiritually disabled. We read Psalm 53 this morning, and in Romans 3, Paul echoes many of the same sentiments in Psalm 53, as he wrote in Romans 3.10, As it is written, 
There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There are no seekers. Sinful man will not seek God, lest God first intervenes and changes his mind and his heart. The Bible teaches what the theologians call original sin. That we are born with a sin nature that we have inherited from our first parents, from Adam and Eve. So in Psalm 51 and verse 5 it says, David writes, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not only do we have a sin nature that we've inherited, but when we have opportunity, we commit actual transgressions. And so in Psalm 58, 3, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. I often say anybody who's been a parent of a toddler knows this. Once they have, the child has an opportunity to exercise the will, then there are actual transgressions that are committed. Our only hope is for the intervention of God for us. Sin is not a light obstacle that we can get over with just a little bit of help from God, but it is an insurmountable wall over which God himself must lift us. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, he told them that before they came to know Christ in their unregenerate state, they were spiritually dead. But God, by grace, made them alive in Christ. So he wrote in Ephesians 2.1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We sometimes said that the model that Paul gives us is not the hospital model. The Arminian will say, uh, well, how are you saved? You're, you're like somebody who's very, very sick. You're very, very sick and you're, you're lying in the hospital and Dr. Jesus comes and says, here's the medicine if you will only reach out your hand and take it. But Paul in Ephesians doesn't have a hospital metaphor. He has a morgue metaphor. And you could reach out the medicine to a, a man who's dead and in the morgue all day long and he'll never reach his hand out to take it. You who were dead in trespasses and sin have been quickened, made alive in Christ. And so this is why, friends, to understand the doctrines of grace, we have to start with depravity, with sinfulness. That's total depravity. This doesn't mean that we're completely evil. This doesn't mean that the image of God has been rubbed out in us. It hasn't. After the fall, the scriptures still speak about man being an image of God. But what it does say is that sin has had a radical, a total effect. It's affected our minds. It's affected our intellect. It's affected our emotions. It's affected our bodies and that we're going to die. Sin has had a total radical effect, and because of this total and, and radical impact, there must be a radical intervention by God himself if we are to be saved. This takes us to the second point, which is unconditional election. The word election, when it comes to theological terms, 
means choosing. And it's similar to the political idea of election. You have an election, you go into the ballot uh, box and you make a choice for who you're going to vote for. And when, it talks, when we talk about election in the Bible, the theological term, though it's referring to God's choosing. In fact, one of the names uh, that is given to Christians, along with words like disciple and believer and follower of the way, another term that's used for Christians is the elect the ones who have been chosen by God. And the Bible teaches that because we are spiritually unable to choose him, because there is no good in us, no righteousness in us, we don't seek him, God must first choose us. In Ephesians 1, 4 and following, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He's talking about the covenant of redemption before the world had even been made. That we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. It's also there in 1 John 4.19 where the Apostle John wrote, We love him because he first loved us. Unconditional election means God chooses those who would be saved, not conditioned on anything they have done, on anything that they are. It's unconditional election. Sometimes we talk about as parents, that we have an unconditional love for our children. That means we love our children. doesn't mean we'll, we'll always approve or we'll bless everything that they do. But we will pray for them. And, and we will have a love for them that's without condition. And if we, could, if we could take a very dim analogy, if a parent can love unconditionally, what about God? He sees no merit in us, nothing good that we've done. But he unconditionally elects those who would be saved. Third, the L, limited atonement or particular redemption. This teaches us that God not only formulated a plan of salvation, he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth, but he accomplished that plan by Christ's death on the cross. And when Christ died on the cross, it wasn't a generic death. It was a particular atoning death. Christ was, was saving for himself a people, a peculiar people, a particular people. Reformed Baptists in England used to be called particular Baptists because they taught this doctrine. Not universal atonement, but particular redemption. Where do we get it biblically? Think about what Christ said in Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Many. Think about in Acts 20 when the Apostle Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He pulls them together, these pastors of the churches, and he says to them, Acts 20 verse 28, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves 
and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. Here's the part to pay attention to, the clause to pay attention to. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Whom did Christ purchase with his own blood? The church. The church. Believers. Or think about You see this in a teaching that's primarily a practical teaching about the way husbands and wives should relate to one another in Ephesians 5. Where Paul will say to wives, wives, uh, be submitted to your husbands as to the Lord. And I know our contemporary culture hates that. Modern feminism hates it. But you've got to read the rest of it, right? After he said that to the women to be intelligently submitted to Christian husbands, he continues and says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. For whom did Christ give himself? For some generic undefined cause or purpose? No. For a particular purpose, he gave his life on the cross for the church. That's what we mean by limited atonement or particular redemption. On the cross, Christ did not say, it's almost finished. It's almost finished. I've done my part, and I'm going to wait for you to do yours. What did he declare? John 19, verse 30. It is finished. He's a satisfied Savior. He accomplished the purpose for which he had been sent. Fourth of these five points, the eye is irresistible grace. The Lord, by his mercy, overcomes all our objections and all the obstacles within us when we are elect by him. All those things that would be a barrier because of our sin to be drawn to him, to, be, to, to resist him, he overcomes all of this and draws us with cords of kindness, as the prophet might have put it to himself. In John 6, verse 44, Christ said, No man can come to me Except the Father which hath sent me draw him. No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. The verb that's used there is the same verb that's used elsewhere in that gospel to describe the drawing of a sword out of its scabbard. Does the sword draw itself? No, it's drawn. It's passed. It's acted upon. And so those who come to Christ are those who are drawn unto Christ. The funny thing is, most of us, when we become Christians, we think, well, I chose to become a Christian. And then what happens a few years into it, we're like, oh, wait a second. Um, He was actually drawing me this whole time. I thought I was doing something autonomous. And he was actually drawing me. I thought I loved him first. But he loved me first. 
And that, that begins the, the, the deepening of our appreciation for the salvation that comes through Christ. Fifth and finally, the P is for the perseverance of the saints. Sometimes it's called the preservation of the saints. Um, some people prefer that. To, uh, I think Jason preferred that. We've talked about this doctrine before, the perseverance of the saints. And this doctrine basically teaches that those whom God saves, he also keeps in the faith. Those whom he saves, he keeps in the faith. Now this is not, there's a perversion of this teaching that's taught in some evangelical churches and it's, it's articulated as once saved, always saved. We don't believe that because sometimes run into people and they say, are you a Christian? And they'll say, they'll say yes, I am. Um, and you'll start to talk to them a little bit about things of God, and they, they, they can't articulate anything that they believe. They're not praying. They're not attending worship. They're, they're, they're not um, growing. Um, and uh, they say, but I, I you know, walked the aisle when I was seven. I was baptized, etc. Once saved, always saved, right? No, that's unbiblical teaching. The perseverance of the saints is that God saves a man and God keeps him in the faith. Now, he may go through periods where he is backslidden. He will still have remaining corruptions within him. But the one on whom God has locked his favor, he will not let go of him. He will not let go of him. And he will call forth from him a holy and sanctified life. The Apostle Peter, quoting from Leviticus 11.44 and 1 Peter 1.16, said to the saints, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And Christ taught wonderful, wonderful teaching in John 10, verses 27 through 29. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. If we're in the Father's hand, we will not be removed any more than we expect that as a Christian when we're saved, that when we go to heaven, that we will ever lose our citizenship in heaven. If you believe, in, if you, believe you can lose your salvation, then you should, believe, you should also believe you can lose your place in heaven. We believe, again, the God who saves men, keeps men in the faith. Well, friends, we have looked at TULIP. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. We call this the five points of Calvinism. We call it the doctrines of grace. And by the way, these points logically stand or fall together. You cannot say I'm a three-point Calvinist or I'm a four-point Calvinist. They all interlock and hold together. Deny one, you deny all of them. So, friends, in light of this, let us consider today, let us think about, contemplate our own salvation with gratitude in our hearts to the Lord. 
For as Jonah said in the belly of the great fish in Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for these old paths, these old doctrines that are just as vibrant and alive today as when the Apostle Paul preached them. And as other men in history have preached and taught from George Whitfield up to our present day. And so, O oh God, uh, we give you thanks for these doctrines. Let, let, let this humble us, not, not puff us up with pride. And let it, most of all, fill our hearts with a sense of gratitude, worship, and praise unto thee. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.